for today's study, we're going to try to cover Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 16. Um, This is directly connected to verses 1 through 10, which we focused on last week. What happened in in those first 10 verses of chapter 3 is that Peter and John were on their way to a temple prayer service in the city of Jerusalem. And as they were heading into the temple proper, they passed through, or were just about to pass through one of the the great gates into the temple courtyard, the inner courtyard. And this gate was known as the beautiful gate. And as they were just about to pass through the gate, uh, they encountered a man who was laying there who had been lame from birth and was on a daily basis carried to that location by probably friends and family and he was there to beg a living for himself leaning on the generosity of the people that were coming to worship the Lord at the temple and Peter and John encountered him and gave him a gift far beyond what he was expecting or hoping for. Um, They, um, by the grace of God and by the appointment of the Lord and certainly by the power of the Lord, they were able to uh, effect a healing, really what I identified last study as a miraculous healing. And the man uh, was made whole and strong immediately, instantaneously. And now uh, they've actually entered the temple courtyard. They're participating in the prayer service. And now we're going to pick up in verse 11 as he's coming out with them. And uh, this is the beginning of what is traditionally referred to in, um, in study of Acts as sec, uh, Peter's second sermon. But uh, just like I had mentioned back in our study in chapter two, the uh, message, the proclamation that Peter made after the events of the, the early church being filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and then a, a crowd gathered and uh, Peter stood up representing the believers and representing the apostles and he made proclamation to the crowd. It's not tech, it was not in chapter two, and neither is it here in chapter three, technically what we would refer to as a sermon. Sermons are for the church. And while the, the believers that were there that day, and as far as we know for sure, only Peter and John were believers in this circumstance, I'm sure both Peter, even though he's the preacher, I'm sure he benefited from what he had to proclaim. And I'm sure John listening to him benefited from what he had to proclaim. But his message was not aimed at the church. And it's not a sermon in the traditional Sunday morning message kind of format. It's a gospel encounter. It's a gospel opportunity moment. And Peter is going to take full advantage of this moment and he is going to proclaim the truth about who Jesus is and what God has purpose to accomplish through his son and the truth about what has really happened to this man and why it's happened to this man and he's going to do that to an unbelieving crowd that are gathered there that day because a miracle has happened it happened in public there were witnesses to that miracle not only witnesses to the miracle but there were witnesses to the fact that this man had been for 40 years as we saw in our study last week laying at this gate unable to even stand up let alone walk and now this man is not just standing he's walking he's leaping he's praising God and he is clearly fully whole for the first time in his life and so as you as you might imagine a crowd is gathered because they're exceptionally curious about what's going on so let me read from verse 11 and Peter's message that day was longer than where we're going to stop in verse 16 but it's long enough and rich enough that I don't want to try to bite off too much of a chunk of what he had to say that day uh, in one study so we'll save the rest for our study next time so verse 11 of chapter 3 And this is speaking about the man who has just been miraculously healed. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Now, 
I'll explain the details of that in just a moment, but let's go ahead and read through the entire section. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. All right, so the very first detail, and it's not a huge one, but I, I think it's one that we're, of course, meant to notice. It's interesting that Luke wants us to catch this detail. Verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John. So Peter and John have been instrumental in the Lord's purpose in healing the man. And then where we left off is they went ahead and entered together, him going with them now for the first time in his life into the inner courtyard. And they've participated, the three of them, in the Levitical prayer service that took place every afternoon at three o'clock in the afternoon in the temple courtyard. And having finished that prayer service, they're now coming back out of that courtyard. They're passing back out of the beautiful gate where he normally used to lay on a daily basis. And then they move over to the eastern side of the temple courtyard. And that eastern side was identified and known in that day as Solomon's portico, or you could call it Solomon's porch. It was also known as Solomon's colonnade. Basically, along the entire eastern side of the temple was this huge courtyard, but it was covered on the eastern side so that if there was any kind of inclement weather, you could still continue to gather there and meet there. And on that eastern side, Jesus himself had used that area, that huge outdoor but covered but open to the air porch area. He had used it for ministry. And not only that, but all of the rabbis, the, the accepted and known teachers of the day would typically hold their classes and hold their meetings, their lectures there in this courtyard area under Solomon's portico. And so Peter and John understanding most likely that there's going to be an opportunity based upon the healing of this man to address the crowd, they make a beeline for the area that would be best suited for such a large group of people. And then one chapter later in chapter four, we discover just how many people did gather together in amazement to find out why it is that this man has been healed and what's going on, what's the story behind this event. And what we learn is that after Peter finishes his proclamation, there's a large response from a large crowd of people that truly have come to know the Lord that day with saving faith. And it's some 5,000 and only the men, adult men are counted in that crowd. Likely there were some women that were saved as well. And likely there were some children that were saved as well. But at least for sure, we know there's a crowd of a minimum of 5,000 people. So as Peter is speaking here, don't see it as just a small interested group has gathered around him. This is what we would call in modern evangelism terms now, this would be like crusade evangelism, meaning a huge crowd has gathered to hear what Peter has to say. And as they're gathering together, we're, we're given a description by Luke of what's percolating in the hearts of the people that are gathering to ask them questions. They are described here as being utterly, this is the crowd, utterly astounded. So now they're together and verse 12 tells us when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. And the, the word it is pointing back to something that's happening here in verse 11. And so I, I think 
what we're meant to understand is Peter saw the crowd gathering, he saw that they were utterly astounded, and he saw the opportunity that the Lord was presenting to them to represent the Lord through the proclamation of the gospel. And Peter, just like he did on the day of Pentecost, steps into that opportunity and he boldly opens his mouth and begins to make proclamation. And this is, this is a high degree of boldness for Peter. It's, I think, an even greater degree of boldness than we saw on the day of Pentecost. Day of Pentecost, 3,000 people gathered just outside the upper room where the, the disciples were staying and praying for those 10 days where they were waiting for the day of Pentecost events. And when those 3,000 people gathered right outside that upper room, Peter stepped into that opportunity and he proclaimed boldly the gospel. But why I think it requires a little bit more, even a greater measure of boldness here is that wasn't in the temple and that wasn't in Solomon's porch. And in order for Peter to stand up and, and get the crowd's attention and begin to speak as someone that the people should be listening to is something that would have required confidence, not self-confidence, but confidence in the Lord's purpose that was unfolding in that moment because he was not an acknowledged rabbi. He was not, a, as we would describe it, a man of letters. He had not gone through any kind of rabbinical training. He had not graduated from any Bible college. He was not an acknowledged and recognized teacher in the society and culture of that day. And so he would be calling attention to himself that might lead to the question, who do you think you are and why are you the one speaking to such a large crowd? But Peter doesn't let any of that stop him. And so he sees the opportunity and he addresses the people that have gathered. Here is what he has to say. And I just want to read through again, starting with the phrase men of Israel, what Peter declared uh, through to the end of verse 16. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. He's referring here to Barabbas, that the crowd asked to be released in place of Jesus. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, I want to, I want to set our perspective in a specific direction as we're now diving into this second gospel proclamation that we find in the book of Acts. The first one being on the day of Pentecost. Peter is the proclaimer in both cases. And as I mentioned, as we were starting our study of his message, his proclamation on the day of Pentecost, I want us to pay attention to two things. I want us to pay attention to what he has to proclaim, what he chooses to focus on, And I also want us to pay attention to what he doesn't have to say and what he doesn't focus their attention on. And I think both things are worth our attention because here's the thing about about Christianity today. There is a lot of difference between what we see in the book of Acts and what we see around us in Christianity today. Some of it is acceptable for there to be such difference. For instance, we speak a different language than they spoke. We have a different society that we live in than they lived in. It's a different culture today than there was then. And there's a different level of awareness, this being not so favorable, different level of awareness and familiarity with the Old Testament scriptures as the basis for anything that would be shared about the Lord and about the gospel. But there are some things that shouldn't have changed between this day and the same being for the day of Pentecost back in chapter two. 
There's some, some things in Christianity today that shouldn't have changed from the way things were then, that should be consistent and coherently the same today, or at least, at the very least, very similar today as it was back then. And sadly, and this is just my own observations, I could be wrong about this, but I, I think there's a, a likelihood that I'm actually more on point than I am off uh, target on this. Sadly, so much of what happens in modern Christianity and what is proclaimed in modern Christianity and what is focused on in modern Christianity is not similar at all to what we see Peter focusing on both on the day of Pentecost and here in this second opportunity for gospel proclamation. So let's dig into what Peter had to say and consider that as we do. So first thing, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The very first thing Peter does is he anticipates. What is he anticipating? He's anticipating the natural reaction of the crowd to having witnessed and being observers of a true miracle that has now happened in their midst. And he's anticipating the crowd drawing the wrong conclusion. He understands that the crowd is going to tend to look at him and the crowd is going to tend to look at John, who is his apostolic companion in this moment, And they're going to see them as some kind of spiritual superhero that has arrived on the scene and transformed this man's life. And aren't you amazing and aren't you wonderful and aren't you greater than anyone we've ever seen before? And he knows that if the crowd draws that conclusion about them, then the crowd will miss the entire point of why this miracle has happened. He wants to remind the crowd of what they should have known, which is this miracle could only have been done and accomplished by the power of God himself. That no human being, none, has the power to do what was done that day when this man's life was miraculously transformed from lame from birth to walking, leaping, and praising God in the temple precincts. Immediately, completely And as it's described at the very end in verse 16, perfectly healthy. How could this have possibly been accomplished? Peter is essentially saying, there's no way I could have pulled this off. And there's no way John could have pulled this off. And so if it's happened, don't look at us as the source and cause of what has happened. You need to look in the right direction. And of course, the right direction is what he immediately shifts to in verse 13. But before we look at verse 13, I just want to say, sadly, not all who, who stand in front of God's people and identify themselves as servants of the Lord, not all today and throughout the course of church history, but there's more of them today than there have ever been, sadly, not all would do this kind of redirection that Peter did. There are lots of people that stand in front of God's people and embrace any unhealthy attention that's directed their way and say, yes, look at me, aren't I amazing? And Peter does exactly the opposite. So clearly Peter is being moved by a true spirit of humility. And the ones that I'm describing are moved by a proud and arrogant spirit that would ultimately attempt to steal glory from God, glory that belongs to him and to him alone. And in that sense, should never be shared with any human being. There are those that advertise their services, and I, I, did, I just did a brief Google uh, check just to, I, I knew this was true, but I wanted to just double check for myself. I, I put in the Google bar something like uh, miracle services or miracle, miracle ministries, miracle preachers. 
and followed just a few of the links this week. And, it, you know, I just turned my stomach, honestly. What came up? You know, people claiming, come to us. We are the ones that work miracles. This is the place where miracles happen, as though they were localizing the accomplishment of miracles to their ministry and to their own credit. Peter does the exact opposite. Attention's being directed to him, but in an unhealthy way, and to John with him, and he immediately redirects that attention to where it actually belongs. Verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Now, just in one short little sentence, Peter just packed a ton of theology. And I'm going to try to not stay here too long, but we need to stay here for a moment at least. Why would he identify, because he's wanting to redirect attention from himself to God. That's good. That's healthy. But why does he identify God in these four specific ways? God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, and then ultimately the God of our fathers. Well, the first three should be familiar to us. Um, Let's keep our place in Acts and let's head back over for a moment to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus, to chapter three, to one of the most important events that ever happened in Israel's history. It was a quiet event, quiet in the sense that it was almost like a private event. It was just an exchange between the Lord and Moses. And it took place on the backside of the desert so that the cameras weren't focused on the event as it was happening. There were no observing eyes other than probably the eyes of the flock that Moses was shepherding. Reading from verse one of Exodus three. And this is during the the down years of Moses. If you're familiar with the story of Moses, he lived a long life, a full life. I mean, a full life. Can you imagine all that was accomplished in his lifespan? But he lived a full life of 120 years, but the Lord chose in his purposes for Moses to break up that 120 years into three 40-year segments. in, In essence, Moses lived for three generations of time, uh, the biblical generation being measured by 40 years. So his first 40 years, you know, he was raised in the, in the household of, of um, the, uh, the princess of Egypt who had adopted him. And then his second 40 years is where we're at as this story starts. As he had risen up one day as one of the Egyptian over, overlords was, was abusing one of the Israelite slaves and he confronted the overlord that did so a little bit too zealously uh, or maybe a lot too zealously and he ended up killing the Egyptian uh, slave master and in fear for his life he ran and he ran to the backside of the desert he's out of Egypt now and he's hiding and he spends the next 40 years in hiding and he becomes a shepherd and he gets married while he's there and now here he is still in hiding still married, still a shepherd, and not at all really accomplishing why the Lord has called him for special purpose. This is the beginning of the big change in his life, which is going to lead to the final 40 years of his life. Now Moses was, and keep in mind that he's at the end of the second 40 years. He's about 80 years old when this happens. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. That's the same mountain that later in the events of the Exodus, the entire nation of Israel led by Moses will come back to this same mountain. It's also designated Mount Sinai. So they came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now this is going to be one of the Christophanies that we'll study in our Thursday night study on Christ in the Old Testament. I'll just tell you, this is Christ in the person of this angel that appears to him in verse two. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And there's spiritual lessons in that description. We won't have time to develop that this morning. 
And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you were standing is holy ground. And now this is quoting the Lord in the person of the angel in the midst of the burning bush, speaking audibly to Moses. The Lord says this. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Why does God designate himself to Moses in these four ways? And they're the exact same four ways that now Peter designates or names the Lord as he is about to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the assembled crowd there that day in the temple courtyard. Why these four names? Well, the the three specific names that are mentioned, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are known, and we should understand them as what we call the old covenant patriarchs of Israel. Meaning, when God determined to establish a covenant relationship with a specific tribe of people and one man representing that tribe, that man being Abraham, he appeared to Abraham, he formed a covenant with him, and then when Abraham's time in this world came to an end, the Lord confirmed that same exact covenant relationship with his son Isaac, And then when Isaac's time in this world came to an end, the Lord confirmed the exact same covenant relationship with his son, Jacob. And so from that point forward, throughout all of old covenant history, God was identified as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because he is the covenant God, the God who enters into a special, intimate, connected, and committed relationship with those that he calls into that same covenant covenant and then the fourth designation is just simply he is also the god of our fathers who have followed him following in the footsteps of abraham isaac and jacob so heading back to acts back to acts 3 when peter says why do you stare at us as if it's our power or our godliness or personal holiness that has accomplished this miracle. It's not us. And he points, not in a specific physical location, but he points spiritually to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. If the people that he was speaking to had any understanding of the Old Covenant, Old Testament scriptures at all, they would have immediately thought of the burning bush exchange between the Lord and Moses. And they would have remembered, this is the God who did miracles through Moses. And here now, another miracle, perhaps even greater than any of the miracles that Moses had ever accomplished, because Moses never healed a man who had been born lame into this world and restored him to perfect health. And so Peter is linking the activity of God in this miracle to the same God who did miracles through Moses. And he wants them to understand that this is not some new cult. Christianity is not some new weird offshoot of Judaism. This is the heart of of what Judaism was always about. Judaism is nothing more, if it's rightly understood and rightly practiced, it was nothing more than a covenant relationship with the same God who revealed himself to Abraham, the same God who revealed himself to Isaac, and the same God who revealed himself to Jacob. And here he is now revealing himself one more time. And then Peter adds one additional key detail to that designation of the Lord, and that is this. And this is the the first part they could easily understand, 
connected to Exodus 3, connected to Moses, connected to the burning bush. But this next part that he's about to declare is going to be the difficult and challenging part for the crowd to embrace. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. Now what does it mean that God glorified Jesus? It means Peter is referring just like he did on the day of Pentecost message to the ascension of Christ. That's why we spent so much time. We, we carved out in chapter one even uh, five or six studies just to focus on the significance of the ascension. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't the end of his story. And then God raised him from the dead, but he didn't remain permanently on earth after his resurrection. In the appointed time, he ascended to heaven itself and now sits in the immediate presence of the Lord on the exact same throne that God the Father occupies. And that, according to Peter, is the real explanation of how this man has been made whole. He's essentially linking, (coughs) look back to chapter one of Acts, how we started, how Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, started. In the first book, chapter one, verse one, in the first book, he's talking about in the gospel of Luke. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And I emphasized when we were back in our introduction to Acts and we were looking at verse one of chapter one, that that statement that all that Jesus began to do and teach is clearly implying and intending the people who are reading the book of Acts to understand that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he didn't stop doing and he didn't stop teaching. He continued his ministry. Now his ministry is centered from the throne of God in heaven, but it's still his ministry. And now he's working not directly and personally through his own physical body on earth. He's now working through the agency of those that he draws in a saving relationship to himself. He's working through the church now from the point of his ascension and glorification forward. And Peter wants the crowd to understand there's only one explanation for how this man was healed. God glorified his servant, Jesus. Now it is interesting how he, had, he introduces Jesus to the crowd here. He could have said this, he didn't. He could have said how God glorified the Lord Jesus. Or he could have said, how God glorified the Savior, Jesus, or how God glorified the Messiah, Jesus. Instead, he chooses a more humble designation, but one if, again, they're familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, and this crowd would have been, they would have made a connection that we're meant to make as well. He humbly describes Jesus as God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's servant, Jesus. How he glorified his servant, Jesus. Now normally in, in that culture, just like in our culture today, servants are on the lower end of the cultural and social ladder of hierarchy. And so it seems at first glance that Peter is introducing Jesus as some lower level figure in the purposes of God. But this is an intentional link to a passage that is going to come into play as he continues to develop his message. And it's a passage all the way back in the prophecy of Isaiah. So keep your place again in Acts and let's head back to Isaiah chapter 52. We're just going to read the very end of Isaiah 52. And it, you understand how when this prophecy, and this is true for all the books of the Bible, when this prophecy was first revealed to Isaiah and then written down by him for the people of Israel to read, that the, the chapter headings 
were not, and, and even the, the num- numerical designations of chapters and verses were not in the original text. The translators have added these numbers in order for us to be able to just more easily find passages that we're looking for. Um, I'm not an anti-numbers in the Bible uh, person, but uh, I, I just want you to understand that as they were reading the passage, uh, chapter 52 flows immediately into chapter 53. We won't take time this morning to read chapter 53, but it's, it's easily the most important of all of the prophecies of the saving work of Christ found in the Old Testament. Chapter 53 goes into great detail, uh, very exacting detail, of what Christ would accomplish in his saving sacrifice for us on the cross. But chapter 52 leads right into it. And let's read the very end of chapter 52, starting in verse uh, 13. 52, 13. This is the Lord speaking. And he's speaking about someone. And just so you understand, there was a common misunderstanding among the rabbis of those days in which they interpreted this figure that's about to be described as the servant of the Lord. They interpreted that as a corporate prophecy referring to Israel. And the reason why you and I can know with confidence that that's not what Isaiah was talking about is because everything he has to say about the servant, Israel never fulfilled and could never fulfill because Israel was not a faithful servant to the Lord in their entire history of being designated as the Lord's people. Over and over and over again, they failed to serve as they should have. Let's read from verse 13, though. This is speaking of the Messiah who was to come and introduced in a very humble way. Behold my servant, and it's referring to Jesus in advance, 700 years before he ever came. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. And of course, he was ultimately high and lifted up in his ascension. And shall be exalted. Exalted is the same term as Peter used, glorified. God glorified his servant when he exalted his son in the event of the ascension. All right, let's head back to Acts. And we're still in verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. This is the explanation of the miracle. And then he shifts from what God did to what they as a crowd have done and are responsible for, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he, Pilate, had decided to release him. There was a key moment in the trial of Jesus where Pilate recognized this man has done no wrong. He has done certainly nothing to deserve death, the death penalty. I'm just going to release him to the crowd. And he offered to release him to the crowd and the crowd rejected Pilate's gracious offer and said, no, we don't want you to release Jesus. We want you to release Barabbas instead. And so Pilate ultimately did that. This is what Peter's referencing. Verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one. Now these are specific Old Testament prophetic designations of the Messiah. If you're following on the, um, on the overhead, Jesus is so far identified as God's servant connected to Isaiah 52. He is in Psalm 16, which we studied back in chapter 2, verse 10. He's identified, the Messiah is identified as the Holy One of God, the Holy One of Israel. And in Isaiah 53, 11, which we didn't read as far to get to this, he is identified as the righteous one. And so what Peter is doing here is he is grabbing prophetic descriptions and designations of the Messiah, and he's now applying them to Jesus so that those who were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures could then make that connection following the point that he was making. You denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And then as if that wasn't enough, 
to deny the Holy One of God, to deny the Righteous One of God, they went so far as to kill the author of life. Now that designation is a brand new one. The, the designations that have been given so far describing Jesus to the crowd, they're all connected to specific Old Testament prophecies. This one, the author of life, is a true description of the Messiah, but it's not found anywhere in the Old Testament scriptures. And so we have to look to New Testament passages to understand the connection. I've linked, we won't have time to turn there, but I've linked these passages for you to read in your own time. John, the Gospel of John, chapter one, verses three and four. Hebrews chapter one, verse two, and Hebrews chapter two, verse 10. And these are just three of several others that I could have chosen, but all three of these passages identify that Jesus, in a way that takes the eyes of faith to see and to understand and believe, Jesus existed before he was ever born in that stable in Bethlehem. And he, all the way back to the beginning of God's purposes in all of history, starting in Genesis chapter one, he was on site with God the Father and through Jesus, through the Son of God, God created everything and brought life to everything that is alive. He is the source, the author of all life. Everything that lives owes its life to him. Not just the breathing things, but everything that is a living thing because he is the author of life. The, the emphasis is that there is no life found outside of what he has given life to. You know, scientists have been trying for decades now to create life in a laboratory setting. You know, combining chemicals, adding certain dynamics to the, to the combination of chemicals and materials, and, you know, maybe adding electricity or adding fire, just whatever they could do to try to, to bring about a spark of life. How much life do you think scientists have successfully created so far in the laboratory? And we're talking about some of the most brilliant people on the face of the earth. Zero life. And I, I will just say this. I know I'm a science fiction fan, and you know science fiction has some kind of wild imaginations about what might happen in the future. I don't care if you, you give science another thousand generations. Science will never be able to create life. Why? Because the Son of God is the exclusive author of life. He's the only one that has the power to bring life into existence and to give that which is not alive the life that is given to it. So he says, you went even one step further. You killed the author of life himself. Now, this is not touchy-feely, friendly evangelism at this point. As I described back in chapter two on the day of Pentecost, Peter came at the crowd and he, he confronted them for their spiritual responsibility in the circumstances leading up to the death of Jesus. And he does it again here. Can you imagine? You're listening to a gospel message and, and the man that's proclaiming the gospel is pointing his finger at you and saying, you killed the author of life. What's the point of that? Does he just want them to feel bad? Yes, but not just bad. He, he, is, he is preaching to bring conviction to their hearts. Because conviction is the starting point of what then will be followed by the amazing, saving, gracious work of God in transforming their, their hearts from dead to living in what we know as the new birth. Now, in verse 16, he says, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now here's where Peter gets down to the, where the rubber meets the road and he explains, this is how this miracle happened. The name of Jesus accomplished this miracle 
through faith in his name. So there were two operative principles at work in the miracle that made the man whole. The first one is the most important by far. The name of the Lord Jesus accomplished this miracle. You remember back in the first 10 verses when Peter first grabbed hold of the man and and told him to get to his feet, he said, in the name of Jesus, I do this. I give you what I have to give you. Now, what does it mean that his name made him whole? The name simply is representing the presence and power of the Lord without his physical presence being required. Because where is the physical presence of Jesus at this moment? Seated on the throne in heaven. But because Peter appropriately uses the name of Jesus in the accomplishment of this miracle, he is giving 100% of the credit to the Lord. He is saying, when I spoke to the man and touched the man in the name of Jesus, it was actually Jesus on the throne through the use of his own name accomplishing the miracle. But he adds a second element to it and one we shouldn't overlook or diminish in its importance. He says, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong. So what would have happened that day if Peter had walked up to the man born lame and said the, the magic words, so to speak, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. But let's say Peter just didn't believe it at all in his heart. And let's say the man that he spoke to didn't believe it at all. The man wouldn't have risen and the man wouldn't have walked. It's not their belief. It's not Peter's belief or the lame man's belief or John's belief. None of the three of them. It's not their belief that accomplished the miracle. But their belief is the avenue through which God chose to pour out his miracle grace in that circumstance and heal the man. Both things were essential to what actually happened as long as we give first credit to where it belongs, the name of the Lord. Now, the last thing I want to focus on is I just want to briefly mention for us to notice what Peter did not proclaim that day. I said, let's pay attention as we go through his message. Let's pay attention to two things. Let's pay attention to what he says. Let's pay attention to what he doesn't say. And I I think it's appropriate for us to look at that and consider in comparison to the typical gospel messages that well-intentioned believers share with an unbelieving uh, world around us today. First, and I, I did develop this and I spent some time explaining this so that we wouldn't misunderstand but it's important to notice it just like on the day of pentecost peter did not mention this on the day of pentecost and he doesn't mention it here in the second gospel opportunity there is no mention of the cross as a saving work of the lord now let me just pop quiz so we don't misunderstand no one misunderstands me is the cross a saving work of the lord absolutely yes no question undeniably, indisputably, it is the saving work of the Lord in history. So why doesn't Peter focus on that? Why doesn't he proclaim, Jesus died on the cross for you? Why doesn't he say that? He doesn't say it anywhere in chapter 3. He didn't say it anywhere in chapter 2. He does mention the death of Jesus, which was a death on the cross, but only from the standpoint of making them accountable for the part that they played in Jesus going to the cross. He doesn't ever say once to them, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Now, what I emphasized in chapter 2 was that is a message for the church. That's a message for saved people. That's a message for those that respond to the gospel in a saving way. What he does focus on is the resurrection of Jesus and the glorification of Jesus, which is the ascension of Jesus. Just like he did in the Pentecost proclamation in chapter 2. Second, there's no mention anywhere in this message in chapter 3 Uh, along the lines of God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He doesn't mention that God loves them at all. Did God love these 5,000 people that were there listening to him that day? 
Yes, all 5,000 of them got saved. They were his people. God loved them. God sent his son to the cross out of a motive of love for them. But Peter doesn't focus there. And in a sense, if you say that to someone too soon or too quickly or too early in your description of, of God's interaction with them and God's purposes for them and God's relationship with them, if you say it too early, you can undermine the point of why the gospel must be preached in the way that it should. You can avoid bringing their hearts to conviction if you focus on the wrong thing in the wrong order. And so he doesn't focus on the love of God. And there is no appeal anywhere in chapter 3 of you need to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, which is the typical end point of a modern gospel message. He just leaves the responsibility for what has happened and what they've witnessed laying upon their hearts. And then we'll see, he does call them to a response, just like he did on Pentecost. But it's not a call to accept Jesus as though they're in the driver's seat because they're not in the driver's seat. God is. And he is driving their hearts towards salvation. All right, our application for today, and we'll end here. Uh, I'm already over my time. Number one, recognize that only God has the power to accomplish miracles. I think everyone here knows that. But just, just again, as I emphasized last week, remember that. Keep that in mind when you hear all of these false claimants to being miracle workers when they are not. Uh, redirect any credit that comes your way for God's work in the life of a person, uh, giving credit to the one who truly deserves it. Uh, you can accept the fact that God may have used you in someone's life. Peter's not denying that. He was certainly used in this man's life. That's why the man was clinging to him still. But Peter refused to take any credit for it. Third, emphasize the difference as you're sharing the gospel with people. Emphasize the difference in how the world treated Jesus when he came to how God treated his son and how those two stories ended completely different. The world's treatment of Jesus ended on the cross. God's treatment of Jesus ended with Jesus on the throne. And then finally, believe that the name of Jesus represents his real presence and his real power to accomplish his real purposes for us all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that challenges us, that opens our eyes, that causes us to stop and reconsider how you're working in us as your people and how you intend to work through us. Cause us to grow, Lord, from a greater understanding of your ways as revealed in your work among the earliest Christians here in these passages in the book of Acts. Thank you for that grace in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. God bless everyone.